Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming on such a beautiful evening. <laughs> we are here today to have an excellent and comprehensive uh, lecture by two real experts on saving the Arab Spring economic development in the Middle East. This is a, a Kuwait program public lecture. My name is Christian Ulrich, and I'm the Kuwait Fellow of the LSC, running the Kuwait program. And I'm delighted to introduce on the first speaker, Dr. Bassam Awadawa, former Jordanian Minister of Finance, holding a PhD and an MSc from here, from the London School of Economics. So, welcome back. And a Bachelor, bachelor of Science in Public <coughs> at Georgetown University in the US. Many positions in Jordan as well. Among them, Minister of Finance, 2005, Minister of Planning and International Cooperation, 2001-2005, Director of the Economic Department of the Royal Hashemite Court, Economic Advisor to the Prime Minister, and Economic Secretary to the Prime Minister. And the second speaker is Dr. Adil Malik, whose research focuses on exploring the causes and consequences of economic fluctuations in developing countries also looking at the comparative role of geography, trade and institutions in driving long-run development outcomes. He's a Globe Fellow in the Economics, Economies of Muslim Societies at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies and a research associate with the Centre for the Study of African Economies. And they'll give a, a joint presentation, which is extremely comprehensive in scope, and then there'll be plenty of time for a Q&A afterwards. So please join me in welcoming them to the other day. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of uh, Dr. Adil Malik and myself, I would like to first and foremost thank the Kuwait program of the London School of Economics for the kind invitation and for the opportunity to address this distinguished audience here at the LSE. Adil and I wrote a paper late last year on the economics of the Arab Spring, and it was published in World Development. This evening we are hoping to present the main arguments of the paper and to hopefully trigger a fruitful discussion on possible ways forward for the region. The Arab world is witnessing truly unprecedented change. Although many think that we are still at the beginning of the Arab Spring, there is undoubtedly a deep transition that is taking place. The revolts that shattered the barriers of fear were fueled by demands for freedom, bread, and social justice. Two years now into the Arab Spring, these objectives are as distant as ever. In fact, the challenges have become more pressing. Unemployment has nearly doubled in Tunis and Egypt. Tourism revenues are declining, and fiscal challenges remain unresolved. There is a real danger today that what some Arab countries gained on the political front is being lost in the economic terrain. Today, we are learning that for transitions to be successful, they must include more than political liberalization. Amongst other factors, they must pave the way for inclusive economic development that addresses the core concerns of ordinary people, which had initially fueled the revolts. 
Today, the MENA region has more than half of its working age population who are either unemployed or not in school. The region has one of the highest rates of youth unemployment. Around a quarter of the population in many countries live below the poverty line, and subsidies often exist without providing safety nets. Arab economies need to create 100 million new jobs in the next five years. It is therefore our belief that a new era of change cannot be shaped without a new economics for the region, a new economic order that requires a strong, vibrant, and truly independent private sector, one that is not simply an appendage of the state or a result of crony capitalism. In fact, without a strong private sector, development will be almost impossible to achieve. The question, therefore, is how to develop a strong private sector. We argue in this presentation that private sector development is not simply a technocratic matter that comes out of improving the investment climate, as is viewed by the World Bank. Private sector development is rather a political problem. Independent sources of economic power can easily translate into political power and thus challenge the existing patronage system and social contract. It is also a regional problem because the private sector cannot survive and thrive in the absence of economies of scale, which have long been denied by thin markets and closed borders. The Arab world is one of the most fragmented regions in the world in terms of linkages in production, trade, and finance. These divisions have prevented Arab firms from realizing the benefits of producing for a larger market. The regional dimension of prosperity, which has long been overlooked, is the second component of the new economic order, order that we advocate. A new economic era and a more private and more vibrant private sector are not possible without connected regional markets. Although several attempts at regional integration have been pursued before, today we can no longer afford any more time or failure. The issue of promoting regional synergies and complementarities is no longer a mere luxury and is, in our opinion, the single most important collective action problem that the MENA region faces since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Now, I shall hand over to Adil, who will spell out and substantiate most of these arguments. Once he is done, I will come back to present the overall conclusions and discuss possible ways forward for the region. Okay, before we spell out our main arguments, it's worth defining what we really mean by the Middle East. It's a it's a very diverse place, and in this particular presentation, we are taking the Middle East to be the Arab countries uh, of the MENA region. Uh, one of the key highlights of the paper was to actually talk about the way in which Middle Eastern studies has been fragmented, in the sense that uh, there were very few papers that have captured spaces within disciplines, between economics, politics, 
international relations. And what this presentation will try to do is to really capture spaces within these disciplines. Now, is it really possible or desirable to talk about the Middle East in one breath without looking at the underlying differences? And we think, yes, in certain cases, we need to look, uh, take a big picture view of the region. Uh, it is true that the region differs in policy, resources, ideological orientation, etc. Um, but there are five, at least five common denominators across the commonly recognized conceptual boundaries, whether it's a labor-abundant or labor-scarce country, whether it's pro-Western, anti-Western, or whether it is um, a monarchy or a republic, you have at least five of these factors that are present in most of these societies. One, economic and political power is usually concentrated uh, amongst a tiny elite. In all of these states, whether military plays a large role or a small role, you know, a small role in, in, in uh, Tunisia, a large role in Egypt, still the security services play a hugely important role. Uh, the security apparatus is, is, is coercive, fear, uh, uh, sort of fierce and extensive. You also have profound demographic shifts that are rather common across all the region. And indeed, in most of these states, the public sector is exceedingly important. And finally, one of the things that we would emphasize is the role that external windfalls or the rent streams, the unearned revenue streams from oil, aid, and remittances also play a hugely important role. Now, let me start with a very obvious story that you all know about, which is that this is a region where profound demographic shifts are taking place. You have one of the largest youth cohort in the region's history. But what is less recognized is that, yes, while the Arab world has become, more, become younger, it has also become more educated. And this quantitative access to education, uh, of course, leaves a lot of questions about how good the quality of the education is, but it has created a new constituency for change. It has, in other words, created middle-class aspirations without middle-class incomes necessarily. It is truly, therefore, a revolution of aspirations. In the Western world, we had class-based struggles for change. But in the MENA region, and more broadly in the Muslim world, you have truly generational struggle for inclusion. Therefore, this demography poses profound challenges. And while demography evolves, our concern is that the economic structure of the region is highly rigid, with the state playing the role of the provider of first and last resort, whether it's food, jobs, justice, shelter, it's really everything. From the cradle to grave, it's a welfare state. Now, this welfare state depends on the uninterrupted flow of external windfalls. And this is a region which, of course, all of you know, depends heavily on hydrocarbons. But what is less recognized is that a lot of regions, a lot of regions uh, in this area, which are not necessarily oil-rich, are also highly dependent on fuel resources. Take the example of, of, of Syria and Yemen. Both of them, by any stretch of imagination, are not really resource-rich countries per se, but they're highly resource-dependent because more than 50% of their total exports are dominated by fuel resources. And of course, this is joined by two other flows which are highly related with each other. The role of oil, of course, is there, but also aid and remittances. Think about a country such as Egypt, which where you know revenues from Swiss Canal and foreign aid and also fuel 
uh, constitute about one-third of total revenues. And these uninterrupted revenue streams, these external windfalls, really create a disjuncture between economic and political systems. And therefore, in our opinion, it is the original sin of development. Now, in this plot, you look at the aid per capita, the net aid per capita. And what is less appreciated in the development literature is that actually the MENA region is one of the largest recipients of net aid per capita, leaving behind even sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, there is a close correlation between oil and aid prices, aid and oil prices, between remittances and oil prices. So in years when you have higher oil prices, uh, there's of course more giving to other Arab countries. And of course, a lot of the labor sends back remittances. Therefore, there are connections between the region which defy a common boundary between oil rich and oil poor countries per se. Over the last 20 years or so, we are seeing that uh, there are tensions in the prevailing development model which very much depends on the state as the provider of first and last resort. When it comes to social stability or political stability in the MENA region, it rests principally on two pillars, repression through the coercive apparatus of the state and redistribution. The cost of these has been rising both in the face of what I've said, demography, but also changing technology. These virtual spaces of collective action that social media has offered uh, adroitly evade the long arm of the state. But it's also food prices, because don't forget that the Arab world is one of the most food deficient regions in the world. 90% of food requirements of the GCC are met by food imports. And these rising food prices mean that the cost of this social bargain has been rising. And of course, corruption, inequality of access further increase the cost of this bargain. Now, Basim mentioned about the fact that this crisis is not just a crisis about the state, it's also a crisis about the private sector, or more appropriately, its absence. Many people would balk at this idea, because clearly the Gulf countries have a relatively strong private sector. There are a lot of good entrepreneurs in the region. But when we talk about the private sector, is it really a genuinely independent private sector? Well, there are really question marks about it because the boundaries between the public and the private are really blurred in the MENA region. And that is why state business relationship is a lot more personalized. It usually consists of businessmen and rulers connected through overlapping networks of power and privilege. As a result, when it comes to export presence, the MENA region lags behind. When it comes to productivity of the private sector, again, the total factor productivity rates are often negative. Now, there are two statistics presented here which uh, indicate the dangerous dearth of manufacturing. First, MENA holds less than 1% of the world market share in non-fuel exports compared to 10% in East Asia and 4% in Latin America. In 2003, the combined manufacturers' exports from the MENA region were less than from one country, Philippines. That is really the scale of the crisis we think about the region. And one reason why the private sector is weak is because for the private sector to survive and thrive, you need a bigger market. And what you see in the region is that borders matter, not just politically, but also in economic terms. So this plot divides the figure for intramina exports across three commonly defined groupings, resource-poor labor abundant, resource-rich labor abundant, 
resource-rich labor-importing countries. Whatever category you fall in, by and large, only 10% of the total exports are actually going into the region. So there's very limited uh, trade uh, within the region. And more problematically, this ratio has sort of stagnated. So if you look at 1960s, it was about 9%, 8.5% of total exports were going into the region. Now, about 40, 50 years later, uh, the figure is not uh, significantly high, even as South Asia and uh, Turkey have significantly expanded their trade with the region. So something is going wrong. Why is the region so fragmented? It is indeed one of the most fragmented regions in the world in terms of linkages in production, trade, finance, whether it concerns the mobility of labor, capital, goods, the region is hugely divided. Now, why does this fragmentation matter? I think in the development literature, particularly the one that concerns the Middle East, has underappreciated the importance of fragmentation. Now, this fragmentation matters not just because of the economies of scale, as economists would obviously think just about the economies of scale. You need a large market to operate. But there are a whole range of associated reasons with it. It actually preserves the unequal distribution of wealth because the more closed the borders are, the stronger are the elites and their hold over economic resources because they have greater monopoly power, because it leads to higher returns to predation rather than production. And it actually reduces the investment climate. It creates an adverse climate uh, for the region. But more appropriately, and a story that we are going to emphasize in our presentation today, is that it leads to the underprovision of regional public goods, which are hugely critical in our opinion. Yet another reason, which is you know, rarely appreciated in the literature, is that the more fragmented the region is, the more it has to spend on defense. And indeed, on average, uh, the MENA country, and an average MENA country spends twice as much on defense as a country, uh, a, a, as a South Asian country. And by and large, most MENA countries spend more on defense as a ratio of GDP than other countries. Now, of course, quite a lot of it is outlay on internal security. Quite a lot of it is on expensive uh, arms purchases. But by and large, you see massive spending going into defense. I mean, even after the Arab Spring, over the last uh, two years, countries in the Gulf have spent billions and billions of dollars on arms purchases, even as there were huge requirements uh, for the local populations. Of course, there is variation in that defense spending as well. We are going to present today two major puzzles when it comes to private sector development. The first puzzle is that you're talking about a region which is where there is not even a single landlocked country, unlike Africa. You could argue that Iraq has a very narrow coastal strip, but it cannot be considered as landlocked. So the puzzle before us is that everywhere in the world, if you are closer to the coast, it means lower transport costs and therefore greater specialization in manufacturing and trade. But in the MENA region, coastal proximity does not translate into market access because both borders and sea are difficult to navigate, not because of natural reasons, but because of man-made barriers to trade. The second key puzzle is that everywhere in the world, the more urbanized you are, the higher are the agglomeration economies. And you can only realize this living in London, that for a firm to locate in a big urban center, it saves at least 40% of the cost just by locating next to suppliers, to skilled people, and so on and so forth. Now, the MENA region 
is one of the most urbanized regions in the world. It's even more urbanized, except uh, for Yemen, it's actually more urbanized today than Latin America. More than 58% of the Egyptian people live in urban areas, yet those benefits of urbanization, of agglomeration, are not being reaped by Arab firms. And that presents a striking contrast with Africa. Africa is similarly resource-rich. It is also full of conflict. But Africa is divided because of ethnicity and because of geography. Africa's history of slave trade created ethnic fractionalization, which undermined the provision of public goods, reduced trust, led to internecine civil wars. It also had a very adverse geography. 40% of, the, uh, of an average African lives in a landlocked country. But that is not the case in the MENA region. And the Middle East instead is actually divided by history and by policy. It is divided by history because the roots of private sector development run deep in history. For a long time, the Arab world has been ruled by centralized leaders who have always been more comfortable by giving more power to, uh, to people around the royal circle rather than to merchants who can uh, survive and thrive independently. So throughout the history is a common lament that in the packing out order of power and privilege, merchants really uh, uh, were at the lower rung of the ladder. Now, while local merchants were historically weak, whenever they wanted to form associations under the Ottoman Empire, uh, unlike the European guilds, they were very, very weak. They were never given full autonomy to operate. And they faced all sorts of taxes. So under the Ottoman Empire, imports had lower taxes and exports faced uh, uh, higher taxes. So there was a really adverse framework for uh, the emergence of business. Whenever business thrived, it was really controlled by European merchants and their local prodigies. That was indeed politically expedient because foreign merchants were really seen as a threat. Their economic power was unlikely to translate into political power. And indeed, the state that really uh, tied well with the overall objective of centralized rulers, which was to prevent the emergence of any independent social group who has the capacity to initiate political action. We see a lot of continuity in this in the post-World War uh, Arab world because independence converted these political boundaries into permanent economic boundaries. Old trade routes became dysfunctional and after independence there was a mass exodus of European merchants in many countries which meant that at the time of independence there was hardly any constituency that could drive private sector development. And worse still, the nationalist movement strengthened the Arab state at the expense of business. Leaders like Nasser and other nationalist leaders raised the clarion call of Arab nationalism, but on the first opportunity they got was to sever the ties of the merchants. For them, mass nationalization, land reform, all these objectives were part of an ideology, but they were also politically expedient because they were able to amass more power amongst themselves. So when the United Arab Republic was formed, there was hope amongst Egyptian and Syrian businesses that they would trade more with each other. But soon after the formation of the United Arab Republic, the first thing the leaders did was to really cut the ties of these merchants so that a new constituency could not emerge. And after independence, the discovery of oil 
and the birth of conflict engendered uh, these divisions, sort of locked in uh, many of these divisions. So what we are today as a result, uh, we find ourselves in a situation where MENA region faces not just economic repression, but also political repression. This is a very important graph for us because it gives us a division between tariff barriers, the taxes on exports and imports, and a lot of invisible behind the border barriers, which are called non-tariff barriers, which are highlighted here in the dark shade. As you could see, that the MENA region has even more restrictive trade barriers when it comes to non-tariff barriers than even sub-Saharan Africa. And even more surprisingly, the more labor-abundant countries in the MENA region have even higher barriers. And why is that the case? Because even if they need more jobs, they need a stronger private sector, yet they're more restrictive towards trade. And as we go through our presentation, we would realize that there is an important political rationale for this. Because all of these barriers are important rent streams that are used to win political loyalties. So the MENA region finds itself in, a, in what economists used to describe India in the 1960s and 70s as the license raj, where you have permits, quotas, restrictions, bureaucratic procedures, an entire raft of regulations that really create uh, uh, transaction costs for businesses to operate. So you have you find that compared to the EU, the bilateral trade costs between Arab countries are twice as high. Uh, and of course, even the services sector, whether it's tourism, whether it's uh, banking, yes, the barriers have come down, but when it comes to transportation services, those barriers still remain. Uh, so it's a highly divided region. Of course, economic reform reduced the trade barriers, the tariff barriers, which are easier to measure, but the more discretionary, invisible, non-transparent, non-tariff barriers still remain. They're very sticky. The region is what I call, is really locked in trade logistics uh, because the cost of transport and logistics, ports, shipping, other trade facilitation measures, the region does really badly. Uh, if you look at the trucking industry, it's really fragmented. Small producers, you know, small operators, they don't uh, uh, you know, come together to have greater efficiency. And of course, the region is coastal, but despite a favorable coastal access, it's only a transit point for major shipping routes. So if you are traveling from Jordan to New York, it requires 42 days. Sailing times to Hamburg and Tokyo are 30 and 45 days. Now, that is really a problem, because if you think about the location of the region, uh, you know, Algeria, 1,000 kilometers of coastline, yet a barren landscape for manufacturing. If you ask today Singapore or Malaysia or Indonesia to trade their place with any of the North African countries, they would do that without any trouble. Right? Um, but the region is unable to translate its geographic advantage into a trading advantage. Now, these trade barriers, of course the World Bank and the IMF talks a great deal about these trade barriers, uh, but these barriers are not just procedural barriers. They're also political barriers because it is a regime of economic apartheid that creates rents and monopoly rights for insiders. Think about these barriers as vital access points to the economy. And these vital access points to the economy are only provided to people who are tied to the state. It is, in a sense, it represents the economics of concessions. So under the Ottoman era, the Ottomans gave concessions to European merchants. And after independence, you still have a regime of licenses. If you are a major importer, you have a license, you have a monopoly right. 
And that monopoly right is not completed. And of course, that monopoly right creates an income stream which, is, which serves a vital political function. There are indeed two twin pillars of stability uh, in the MENA region. You either fall in the regime of patronage or you fall in the regime of control. There is no third regime. With the result that the only private sector development, the space for that private sector development where it could emerge is really under these two categories. With the result that you have a private sector but very limited uh, part of that private sector is truly independent or genuinely private for that matter. Why does this matter? It matters because it distorts the level playing field and it erects massive entry barriers. There's a major advantage of incumbency when it comes to the MENA region. The average MENA firm is 10 years older than its East Asian or European counterpart. The number of registered businesses per thousand people is less than a third of that in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. So one of the key drivers of prosperity, one of the key drivers of private sector development is the force of creative destruction, is the force that allows uh, Samsung and Apple of this world to compete with each other and to become obsolete in a few years' time if they don't continue to uh, improve their services. Now, that process of creative destruction is unthinkable in the MENA region because if you are in the regime of patronage or control, you're likely to have a very lopsided structure where there is a pyramid of firms. There are few firms at the top who are highly connected through the royal circle and there are mass of small firms at the bottom with the result that there are massive entry barriers. There are very few businesses that, that are formed. And worse still, only 8% of the total lending is geared towards SME firms. Even for a country like Algeria that sits atop $200 billion of cash reserves, 50% of the firms say they're financially constrained. Uh, Egypt before Mubarak, politically connected firms absorb more than 80% of corporate uh, credit borrowing. So there's a high incidence of what we call connected lending. The ratio of the top 20% of the loans, the ratio of exposure of the top 20% of the loans to total equity uh, is four times as high as in the United States. So there, again, you find a system which is highly connected and it operates under a network of privilege. Of course, that means you have a large informal sector. The size of the informal sector is very high. What does this mean? It means, from a development standpoint, that it actually raises multiple traps in the MENA region. You have small and thin markets, very limited economies of scale, limited investment, reinforces dependence on primary commodities. At the same time, you have limited complementarity of trade, which means you have very limited trade between Arab countries, and it preserves the status quo. All of this means that the private sector is really insignificant, which means it is not really a constituency for change when it comes to business development. The MENA region is truly caught in a political equilibrium, adverse political equilibrium, because there is a politics of policy behind this. There's a political economy of protectionism, as I've talked about, because the insiders would like to protect their advantage, whereas those who will gain from it the small firms and the ordinary people, the unemployed people, are not well organized. And while everywhere else in the world, economic cooperation, regional linkages are a matter of necessity in the MENA region, oil and all these external windfalls from aid and remittances engender some sort of autonomy from integration. Now, when it comes to regional integration and this fragmentation, it is actually both a political equilibrium, it is also a geopolitical equilibrium. 
It's a political equilibrium because, of course, it benefits the insiders. It is also a geopolitical equilibrium because the more fragmented the MENA region is, the easier it is to extract. And therefore, over the last several decades, you have seen that the Middle East is part of an ex extractive process of globalization, which does not have backward and forward linkages. Instead, what you find is that the MENA region is integrating through bilateral trade packs vertically with processes of globalization with very little regional integration. Now, that is what it means. So the top line basically suggests the, 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 the uh, sort of preferential trade agreements with the rest of the world, and the bottom line shows uh, uh, similar uh, agreements within the region. So there's quite a, there's a honeycomb structure of trade integration, what anthropologists would call is almost like a honeycomb structure where there are lots of cells that are insulated from each other but connected to the outside world. And that indeed best describes the situation in the MENA region. Now, given the limited time, I'm going to wind up my story rather quickly and leave you with some big thoughts. We can always come back to the question and answer session. The following argument is that over the last several decades, the World Bank and the IMF have presented some excellent statistics. In fact, most of the statistics came from the reports about regional trade barriers. But when it came to the reports, they fell short of arguing for regional trade integration. Instead, they said we should, region, we should have greater global integration. What we argue is that actually this is a misplaced sequence. And there are at least five reasons why this sequencing is misplaced. It's because you have a primacy of scale economies, because if you want to have regional network of suppliers, greater intra-regional uh, trade, because remember today, East Asia is trading more with each other than with the outside world. And that's only possible because they have fewer barriers. If the region wants to diversify, if it wants to have deeper trade reforms, you need to have regional. There is no running away from the regional, regionalization uh, objective. So in a sense, the region must regionalize before it can effectively globalize. It doesn't mean you have to do one before the other, but there's a great complementarity between the two which must be mainstreamed. Now, this plot really gives you has symbolic significance because there was a project that linked the region together and it linked it through the Hejaz Railway, which was primarily made for Hajis. It connected Damascus with Medina. Now, there is a great symbolic significance here because in 1917, the British military officer T. Lawrence led the Arab tribes to destroy the tracks of Hejaz Railway. Then it was a strategic military imperative to break off the enemy supply routes. But about a century later, it is a strategic economic imperative to create those regional linkages and to connect these markets together. And indeed, in our question and answer session, Basim is going to talk a great deal more about, especially if you ask him, uh, he has really interesting ideas about how regional infrastructure cannot be built up unless you have a regional approach. So if you have Jordan, if you want to solve its energy problem, water problem, uh, rail, railroad linkages, all of these require a regional approach because there's a limited demand for these product, uh, projects, very high cost. And this is what the economists amongst you would know about the weak links theory of development, uh, which emphasizes the importance of linkages and complementarities. 
the fact that if there's one sector that is weak, it keeps all other sectors weak. Think about electricity in Nigeria or Pakistan, right? Where you have massive electricity uh, blackouts, it affects all the firms, and there are massive multiplier effects. A similar argument could be made about regional infrastructure. And I will conclude by saying there are two things that are actually linked with each other. When we talk about the fragmentation of the MENA region, the fragmentation is a direct corollary of centralization. The more centralized the Arab state has become, the more fragmented it has become, and the more you know, coordination failures it has created. Now, centralized systems deny horizontal relationships. That's why you have business associations in the Arab world where the relationship between the firms and the state is stronger than between the firms and other firms, right? It's because deviance from established norms is discouraged. And that is an environment where you cannot have entry and exit of firms, which is a hugely important driver of prosperity. And more so, reform has been a centralizing instrument in the Arab world. And let me be provocative by, by saying that over the last 200 years, there were three major episodes of reform in the Arab world. There was the Tanzimat reform under the Ottomans. These were bureaucratic in nature, bureaucratic reorganization. There was the nationalization reforms and the state-led development reforms by Nasser and other nationalist leaders of his type, land reforms. You had nationalization of the private sector. What it did, really, it was a different kind of reform which basically centralized the state. Then you had under Sadat and Mubarak an opening up of the economy, a period of infitah, economic opening. Now, for a casual observer, it might appear that all these three reforms spread over centuries, the Tanzimat, bureaucratic, uh, Nasser's reform, very centralized trade structure, uh, op economic opening under Mubarak and Salat. The tone and tenor of these reforms are very different. But actually, as a political economist, I find them as part of the same institutional continuum because in each case, reform was a centralizing instrument. Therefore, the key challenge for the Arab world is, will reforms once again be a centripetal or a centrifugal force? This is truly the, the crucible of the Arab Spring. And wherever we go, we cannot run away from the issue of the private sector, because as Basim said, we need to create the jobs for the private sector. But when it comes to private sector development, it is both a despised as, a, as well as one of the most desirable aspects of reform. It is the most despised because it is associated with exploitation, with concessions to European merchants. It is associated with neoliberal uh, reforms and with uh, uh, crony capitalism. But it is also the most desirable aspect of reform because before, without a private sector, you cannot create the jobs. Without a private sector, you do not create the kind of constituency that would demand democratization and a greater, greater opening up of the political system. And in that sense, the struggle for a new Middle East will be won or lost uh, uh, in the private sector. And I'll finish there and hand over to uh, Basim. I will try to be as brief as possible just to give more time for the question and answer session. But just to conclude, to offer some concluding remarks on what we heard from Adil in the presentation. I'd just like to emphasize that the importance of the regional dimension that was developed by Adil is underscored by recent events in the region. 
As an example, consider the, the current impasse over economic reform in Egypt. Slashing food and energy subsidies in order to reduce fiscal deficits is unlikely to win favor in a country like Egypt where 40% of per capita income is allocated to food. It is clear that the politics is constraining the efforts to consolidate to strengthen public finances in Egypt. At the same time, narrow IMF prescriptions threaten to exacerbate an already difficult political situation, with citizens in Egypt no longer afraid to take to the streets to demonstrate their dissatisfaction. The limitations and the constraints of the IMF prescriptions have become very clear to everyone. And even the IMF themselves acknowledge and admit today that macroeconomic stability and social cohesion are not easily reconciled, at least not in the short term. The current impasse on economic reform highlights a larger and more important point, in our opinion. Subsidy and tax regimes cannot be reformed without first redefining the underlying social contract, which has long exchanged welfare distribution in return for political acceptance and acquiescence. Such a move is a very risky move to take for any individual politician, actually for any political party, actually for any single country, at a time of economic uncertainty and unemployment, redefining the social contract. Global evidence from Latin America to Africa suggests that it is easier to bite the subsidy bullet in an expanding economy where citizens feel compensated for the loss of public entitlements. But the IMF is unlikely to have an appetite for such a sequencing. Therefore, what we feel is that the, is that the Arab world today needs a regional bargain that buys the political space for economic reform. This requires that before serious subsidy reforms are introduced, regional powers underwrite a growth pact, a Marshall Plan, if you will, of sorts, that facilitates new investments for reviving economic activity. But while growth can be ignited through such resource injections, it cannot be sustained without actively contested markets. This requires a dismantling of regional trade values, which, as Adil explained, are more pervasive in the Arab world than sub-Saharan Africa. The growth pact that we talk about should commit Arab countries to reforming their subsidy systems and to also lowering the restrictions on cross-border economic exchange. In fact, the regional dimension of prosperity has long been ignored in the Middle East. Weak regional links do restrict the entry and the growth of small firms, making the existing firms more dependent on state patronage. Even though Turkey today inspires much hope among Arab policymakers, it is seldom realized that the recent transformation of Turkey from the sick man of Europe into one of the fastest growing emerging markets 
would not have been possible without actively developing regional synergies. Today, there is very little hope for the Egyptian or for the Tunisian economies without such regional linkages. Unemployment, for one, is difficult to tackle without reopening Libya's labor market that has historically absorbed migrants from Tunis and Egypt. Tunis, arguably the most hopeful case for reform in the Arab world, is suffering from a crippling investment shortfall that is unlikely to be met by Europe, which is dealing with its own fiscal problems. Capital flows from resource-rich Arab neighbors offer a viable alternative. In fact, Arab economies can benefit from a regional aid push, coordinated through a new development institution organized on the lines of the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, EBRD, that underwrites or that would underwrite the costs of economic transition. This can be combined with new investment vehicles, such as sovereign wealth funds, to provide finance to credit starved firms and small and medium-sized enterprises. While there is no dearth of Arab regional development banks, these have largely failed to act as coordination and commitment devices. The Arab world really needs to revamp its development effort in the face of the emerging challenges. This calls not for a quantitative leap in development funding, in development spending, but it also calls for streamlining, for streamlining existing aid effort. Troubled economies in the region are continuing to receive blank checks from the rich GCC countries who are effectively subsidizing public services, not only for their citizens, but also for the citizens of neighboring countries. For too long, Arab governments have tried to address problems by throwing money at them, but really cash does not commit governments to reform. Cash that doesn't commit governments to reform will not solve problems. It only postpones them. Unconditional aid efforts can do more harm, in fact, by softening the budget constraints, reducing pressure for economic reform, and exacerbating the moral hazard problem. The changing Arab world calls for a new, fresh thinking on regional development that redefines the relationship not just between the citizens and the state, but among the states themselves, between Arab countries themselves. It is no longer prudent to divide Arab nations between donors and recipients, between resource-rich and resource-poor countries. While the oil-rich oil rich GCC is not yet facing an imminent risk of turmoil, it is difficult for these states to remain insulated from unrest in neighboring <coughs> countries. It is in their interest to contribute to their neighbors' economic revival and facilitate the political transitions in these countries. At the end of the day, a regional framework for integration is the only possible way for all countries to succeed in achieving positive growth levels. No one country will be able to face the economic challenges in the future in the absence of such a model. Energy, water, and infrastructure projects will always be limited and will fail to attain the desired social and economic returns if economies of scale are not achieved. Many examples attest to this. Gas and oil pipelines, 
cross-border water conveyance systems, electricity grid interconnections, telecommunications infrastructures, and road and railroad networks require, all of them require, an underlying regional cooperation. In order for trade to flourish, barriers must be lifted and policies must be harmonized. Labor migration must become a fundamental pillar of the regional political economic order if the youth are to find meaningful employment and if the region is going to thrive. In confronting the region's development challenges, as Adil pointed out, geography presents opportunities for both change and the status quo. The region is massively favored by its geography of trade and investment. Given its superior access to coasts, markets, and resources, the Middle East is naturally predisposed towards trade and competitive production. This can be a critical agent for change. At the same time, the geography of resources and conflict can be a retrogressive influence since it generates rents that establish the primacy of patronage over production. The future of the region hinges on how policymakers grapple with this clash of geographies. Can they harness their natural geographic strengths to build a future based on trade and production, or do they fall back on the geography of rents and patronage? For the Arab Spring to complete the transition, it must revolutionize the economics as well as the politics of the entire region. An inclusive model of economic development within countries and across the region has now become a necessary requirement for stability. The international community must now adapt their policy response to the Arab Spring and provide the sufficient conditions for regional stability and security. A regional model of economic integration that is built on an effective and productive role for the private sector and the development of the region is a key component in this new order. For it to be sustained, however, this order must be based on inclusion and open access. This requires a historic strategic concession, both on the part of national elites and international stakeholders to relieve space for private sector development and for regional collective action. The quicker the international community accepts and supports this model, the more successful the transition will be in reaching a clearly defined destination, which today, by all accounts, is still missing. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to both speakers for really hammering home the message that the economic impact and the economic measures will be absolutely critical to addressing many of the underlying dynamics that have triggered the upheaval we've seen over the past two years. We have about 40 minutes for questions. We have stewards in the audience with microphones, so uh, please wait for a microphone to reach you, and if you can introduce yourself, that would be excellent as well. Uh, Laura. Hi, um, Laura Katiri from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Um, thank you both very much for your very interesting and thought-provoking um, lecture. 
I have two comments to, ma to make. Um, one is regarding the issue of different trade barriers facing Middle Eastern countries. And um, I did I agree very much with everything you said. Um, I'm just wondering whether, whether maybe you would think that the reality can differ quite a lot still among Middle Eastern countries. For example, if, if we go, if I give you a micro level example from Morocco, um, Morocco, uh, again, I agree totally with you. In Morocco, there are many barriers, many patronage systems. For example, access to funding is very difficult for small entrepreneurs. Access to electricity, for example, is also a means by which patronage can be exercised. Um, however, I'm, I'm wondering whether we're sometimes a bit too simplistic when we say these countries just fail to develop better secondary and tertiary industries. In the end, countries like Morocco and indeed the whole of North Africa, after all, have a massive advantage in primary products, especially agriculture and textiles. And if we ask agricultural product producers about their main barrier towards trade, they will answer you quite straightforwardly, the European Common Agricultural Policy. So here we have really a procedural problem for these for, for producers, and after the common agricultural policy, it will be the WTO's agreement on textiles, which comes next. After these barriers, we also face barriers simply of lack of education, that's lack of funding more than political unwillingness to educate people. For example, if we go to the very low firm level, if you are an agricultural entrepreneur or a textile company, you might not be able to understand Morocco's complex for, um, free trade agreements and the different requirements, for example, for rules of origin. These are, we completely underestimate the, the importance such details, such regulatory details have on people's everyday life. You might be a Moroccan entrepreneur, you want to travel to Europe for an exhibition or sell your products, but you don't get a visa, unfortunately. Or you do get a visa, but then you are in your exhibition and you don't have a, ca a machine to accept credit cards for payment. These are small technical problems, but they create huge, huge problems which permeate the whole industry. I'm sure the Jordanian representative can relate to these problems as well. Um, the second point I wanted to make was about um, the role of subsidies um, and especially Egypt, Egypt's plans to, to reduce their, their, their fuel and food subsidies. Now, I'm taking food subsidies aside. I've done quite a lot of work on subsidies, and um, I, I do believe that food subsidies can be quite important, especially in countries like Morocco, um, Jordan, other countries where, where they really help to alleviate poverty, and food subsidies tend to be the smallest part of the subsidy bill usually a country has. So what I'm talking about are fuel subsidies. And in this case, if we look at Egypt's subsidy bill for this year expectedly, and that's with reduced subsidies, sub fuel subsidies will constitute about almost more, more than three times what Egypt is asking from the IMF. So if we look at this enormous budgetary burden, I think it should be clear to everyone that, that there, there is no other way than to, to, than to reform these subsidies. Fuel subsidies are incredibly inequitable. And um, I would actually think that citizens, yes, they can expect the state to provide welfare in return to the taxes they pay. They should expect that, in fact. But they should start understanding that fuel subsidies are not in their own interest. They are not the best way to, 
channel the money back into the economy, and we know very well as economists why. So for me, I think the, the, the first question that I would ask Egypt is how do you intend to compensate people for the removal or, or partial elimination of subsidies? Do you want to introduce um, maybe more targeted subsidies, or do you want to overhaul the social system? And I think that's something with which Jordan has quite some experience. And I think this, the Jordanian example is one way forward in reforming subsidies. However, what even institutions like the IMF need to understand is then don't just cut the funding altogether. So don't ask them to cut, to basically just um, com- to, to, to um, improve their public finances by just eliminating this budget item. Take this budget item, incentivize countries to remove this and replace it by something much more in the interest of the public, which is an improved social welfare system. And I think if we look at countries from Morocco to Egypt, why parties like Islamist parties um, win elections nowadays, it's because they, they promise exactly that, unconditional welfare systems. Whether they deliver on that is a separate question, but I think if we look at election results in the region, we are hearing people are calling for that. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, both very good questions, and I have uh, I have indeed read your paper on on the lentier state of Zala. I was never able to get back to you. <laughs> now, I think your question about trade barriers is absolutely correct. Uh, one of the challenges for the social scientists is to really think about individual countries, individual sectors and identify precisely what those regulations are. And there are many different kinds. I mean, there's a restriction which prevents the Syrian trucks that transport agricultural goods to Saudi Arabia to come back without a cargo. Or if you are a Jordanian importer, it's easier to import, cheaper to import from London Heathrow than from neighboring Lebanon. And there are several such examples. And you're indeed right that uh, Morocco also faces restrictions from the European side, which can be very problematic. And in fact, much of the North African engagement with Europe in terms of trade is a complex maze of different, different kinds of uh, uh, agreements where business associations have very limited agency. That's one of the problems. In many countries, when you have contracts, business stakeholders are taken on board. Uh, but that is not necessarily the case in Morocco and other places. Now, agriculture agricultural sector also faces a great deal of restrictions. Uh, and indeed, that's where transport costs are hugely important. The average food prices, price in, in the MENA region, 40% of it uh, is constituted by a transport costs. So there's the massive gains to be made uh, uh, in that area. Now, uh, agriculture is also a sector that has been, that has, that has not received a lot of protection from the state. I mean, Algeria at one point in time was a major provider of uh, food products uh, to, to, uh, to lots of neighboring regions. Uh, but soon after independence, it basically lost that advantage. Agriculture is a very tragic story. Uh, of course, rules of origin, whole raft of regulations are there. This is really the tip of the iceberg. The key thing is to, to identify those barriers. Uh, last year, when I went to Algeria, and on the way back, I wanted to uh, convert the local currency into dollars, to my surprise, I discovered you cannot do that on the airport. Now, that is 
you know, really half an hour, 40 minutes away from southern Europe, and you're almost living in a Russian era, right? Uh, and I, it's easy to understand why, because there are obviously insiders who control that black market for foreign exchange. Now, the second question about subsidies is an important one again, and I think the question is not just about reducing subsidies. It's about right-sizing subsidies, targeting them better. Because remember, despite an extensive subsidy system, there are still food riots going on. In, you know, there are bread shortages in Egypt, there are fuel shortages in Egypt, because they have created a huge black market. And by the way, the entire public distribution system, especially when it concerns food in Egypt, there are only three or four suppliers. There are important parastaters, there are important bureaucratic intermediaries who benefit from the system. And the question about subsidy is a question about the right discourse. It should be a discourse, as Basim said, of, of a gain rather than a loss. You need to compensate the losers. And one way to start that discourse is to say subsidies are badly targeted because they benefit the top end of the, of the income distribution and they benefit people in the urban areas. Now, one particular tool that uh, developing countries are growingly relying on when it comes to public distribution systems uh, is the use of the biometrics technology. The UID in India, uh, the Nadra in Pakistan, um, Latin American examples, African examples, we are basically you know, replacing these with uh, sort of direct cash transfers, which could have better welfare implications because you basically undercut the role of uh, intermediaries. Uh, Iran tried to do that. Uh, it was a very uh, sort of interesting endeavor. But of course, after the sanctions, that has, uh, has been disrupted. But I think there are lots and lots of ways in which you could uh, redefine the entire subsidy system. But again, you need to have a growth bargain, as Dr. Bossom said, which is underwritten by regional powers who understand the context and are not very short-termist in nature. Just to add a couple of points, um, I think both, both questions reaffirm the, the central thesis of the argument that was made uh, this, this evening. Uh, first of all, in terms of the regional uh, trade to barriers and the aspect about agriculture in, in Morocco. Um, in Morocco, this is a very valid example, again, uh, where you tend to globalize before you regionalize. If you look at the figures in terms of the trade between Morocco and Algeria, I mean, you can't even get a visa to Algeria. You can't cross into Algeria, let alone crossing into Europe. You were mentioning about the visa. So it's the question about the regional barriers to the free flow of goods and people and services that has uh, rendered the whole concept of globalization or EU partnership with these countries to be much more readily available, despite all the restrictions, of course, than to have a regional approach to trade among all these countries, the Maghreb countries. And it's, it's ironic that the only effort that took place to regionalize was as a result of the EU partnership. If you think about the Agadir process, which started between the countries that signed with the European Union, Agadir, Tunis, and Morocco, and Jordan, and, and, and uh, uh, Egypt, uh, who signed the EU agreement, I mean, that was the only incentive for these countries to get together and talk about some kind of a free trade agreement between them, which is still not working properly, just to take advantage of the ability or of their uh, agreements with the European Union. 
So the, the whole concept about regionalizing before, before globalizing is very, very important. I believe that the whole uh, trade concept, uh, particularly in, in agriculture with the European Union, is very much skewed. And you know why, obviously, because the Maghreb countries and countries like Jordan and others represent uh, competition for Italy and Spain, particularly when you speak about tomatoes and tomato pasta and, and olives and, and all of these agricultural products. And this is an issue. And this is an issue that has really complicated the whole European uh, South Mediterranean relationship within the partnership agreement since 1995 at least, and it still continues. So this is all the more reason for us to really look at this Arab Spring or Arab awakening, or whatever you want to call it, as an opportunity to, revi to revitalize or to revise the existing patterns of trade, the existing the economics that have governed the region for such a long time, and to come with a new economic order that is built on less protectionism, less borders, less economic borders, more uh, uh, deeper markets, and the ability to actually trade and to produce and to look at the larger market as in, in, in its uh, entirety. The second question about the subsidies, if I may, uh, I think that's exactly the point. You need, there is, nobody is disputing the fact that subsidies, as you rightly said, particularly fuel, fuel subsidies are inefficient and they cannot go on, particularly when you are subsidizing a product and you are not targeting it for those who deserve to receive the kind of support that you need, and particularly in the absence of social safety nets, because that is, that is the important part. Now, for us to be practical, within the next few years, it's going to be impossible for any one Arab country that is uh, subsidizing these products, and most of them are, uh, to remove these subsidies whether they have an IMF conditionality or without an IMF conditionality. And this is why we're saying we need to be really innovative and we need to be creative and we need to think about a regional approach that would allow for these economies to grow, for the demand to expand, for the, for the growth of the economy to take place in order to compensate some of these people who are receiving these public entitlements and who are going to be deprived of these public entitlements. I cannot see any other solution. I cannot see how just the, the, the fiscal department in the IMF is going to deal with this in, 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 in the absence of the reality that governs today's world. And this is a very, very important issue, whether we speak about Egypt or we speak about Jordan or we speak about any other country that today relies on the IMF for standby arrangements and for uh, clean bill of health in the case of Egypt in order to get uh, donor assistance. It's going to be extremely difficult politically for them to do that because, as I mentioned, this, this entails the revision of the social contract in any one country. And this social contract needs to be revised in a much more comfortable political atmosphere, if you will, rather than the existing prevailing situation. I don't know if I answered your question, but... Thank you very much. Right, we'll take a group of questions now because we have a number of hands in the front. So before here... You start in the corner over there, and then we'll just move on. My name is Halil, uh, master's student in political economy of Europe. Thank you very much for your talk. It was very inspiring, actually. Um, you referred to uh, EU lots of times, actually. Uh, but uh, do you see in this uh, year of Arab Spring, uh, is there also a demand from public for this regional Union somehow, 
uh, and uh, are there intellectuals, uh, as in the example of uh, EU, for example, there were Schumann uh, monads in EU, they pushed uh, for policy change, for unionization, and they took that role. Um, are there uh, such intellectuals in the region available? And secondly, uh, in uh, EU, example, in the single market, industrialists set the agenda somehow. For example, the European Roundtable, uh, they uh, pushed for policy change uh, against uh, Japanese and US car manufacturers, for example. Uh, they, they saw the advantage of single market for, for scale economy and I mean, in, uh, because of the regionalization uh, they gained uh, from, from the uh, project. Uh, but uh, you said uh, private sector is very weak uh, in the region. They cannot take that role. So uh, what uh, sectors can take that role? I mean, what sectors uh, can lead for the Union or, or regionalization in the sector uh, in in the region. Thank you very much. And then, uh, person in the white shirt. Hello, my name is Mike. I'm a foreign student. Um, thank you for your talk, of course. Um, Mr. Malik, you argued that education has created a an uh, constituent uh, constituency for change. Would you please elaborate on this point, perhaps taking into account that not long ago Farid Zakaria argue, argued on his TV program that in the last decade no progress at all has been made in the field of education. For example, he cited that um, literacy rates are still very high. Would you please comment on, on the issue of education? Can you repeat the last part of the question? What did he say about uh, yes, no progress uh, at all was uh, took place? That no progress at all was achieved in the field of education sure. in the last ten years in in, uh, in the Arab world. In the Arab world, okay. Yes. We pass it behind you to Zaid. Hello, former student of uh, both the good doctors. Um, uh, my, I understand your argument with regards to inclusiveness, whilst also making the system more decentralised, economically speaking. But I think the problem is structural in the sense that some of the poster boys of a successful private sector in the region have benefited uh, by their proximity to, the, to various regimes. I mean, the Sabiks, the Saudi bin Laden, uh, I mean, the names are, are very clear. They're only very successful because they're close to the, to the status quo. And also the other, the other examples are always given of, of the regional airlines, which are supposed to, supposedly very successful. They're not profit-making entities. They're funded. Um, and when something goes wrong, the state funds them even more. So long term, they're not, they're not the best sort of uh, examples to follow. And I think um, getting away from that regime and friends economic model is going to be really difficult um, because when you expand into the private sector, tenders, for example, could be political gifts. There was a recent um, tender for 50 billions worth of construction contracts in Saudi Arabia that went to two companies, Saudi Ojeh and Saudi Bin Laden. So the, the, the model of patronage as such was almost c completely transposed into the private sector, which is uh, a really interesting economic conundrum uh, as far as I'm concerned. And then in front of you as well. Uh, Harry Gortopenner from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, two questions. Um, the first is uh, the economic causes of the Arab Spring have been kind of gone over quite a lot, the unemployment, uh, inequality, 
a lot of them you covered here this afternoon. Um, and what I wondered was, a lot of these have been present for the last 20, 30 years. Why is it that the Arab Spring, in your opinion, happened now? What was it that was unique now? Um, and the second question is, the economic in- uh, incentives of regional in- integration, which you discussed um, today, are very um, uh, strong, and they're, they're, it's a very strong argument. The, the barriers have always been the political barriers in the region. Um, you mentioned Algeria and Morocco as one of the main ones, but also um, the issues of who loses from this, and it's usually the people that are winning from the current system at the moment. So I wanted your uh, thoughts on how you get past those political barriers and whether you see anything being different now to five, ten years ago when it's been tried before. Okay, do you want to start Okay. Okay, I think we, uh, Basim and I will divide these questions so that we have more time. Uh, for, take one for... round of two questions afterwards. Okay, great. So, um, very quickly, the intellectual and political demand, I'll leave that to Basim. Um, your question about industrialists setting the agenda, indeed, when I talked about uh, the MENA region being caught in different traps, one of the traps is that you don't have that private sector constituency. Uh, still, the Arab Spring has raised the bar, right? It has created new incentives for change. So far, it's business as usual. But the question then is, can demography and these revolts inspired by it, can they result in greater political concessions? And I think before that can happen, you need a new discourse, which identifies the reasons for the Arab Spring, the economic reasons for the Arab Spring. Uh, and also the demands for social justice and how they need to be met. And if I might combine this with the last question about political barriers, how do you surmount those? Look, the literature on institutional change is very clear about it. Uh, elites do not give up power unless they are forced to, unless they are threatened with a, uh, with a revolt or with a revolution. And it is true, actually, even in this country, if there were no French Revolution, you know, elites in this country wouldn't have opened up either. So elites only surrender their privileges when they are forced to. And they usually do it under incentive compatible arrangements, when they find it in their incentives. And therefore, we need a new discourse which really convinces the leaders that you are basically, as Dr. Bassem said, you're basically, through these cash handouts, you're basically postponing the problems, you're not really solving them. Um, And it also requires that the international community you see today in Syria, you you also saw in in the Libyan uh, case, that there was a lot of backdoor coordination between militants, the suppliers, the Air Force, a lot of coordination. And indeed, many of the Western nations have a lot of leverage to do that. Are they prepared to use a leverage not just on the military front but also on the economic front is an important question, but it's a question that should be asked with a lot of, with a kind of candid way, frank, honest way, uh, uh, without uh, any fear. Because I think it is ultimately, as Dr. Bassam said, it's ultimately about instability. You cannot afford this region to remain unstable for a very long period of time and being handled through cash handouts. Uh, if anything, it's going to have effect on other countries in the region. Education uh, and the Arab world, I think there is a tendency uh, among scholars to paint a very gloomy picture. And I think uh, we know Farid Zakaria and the research assistants who work for him uh, must have used the Arab Human Development Reports, which were good, but they took a very uh, sort of technocratic view of, you know, 
uh, of what human development is. Uh, indeed, there are massive problems about uh, the quality of education, but if you look at the literacy rate, the convergence in literacy rate is the highest in the MENA region. So if you go back and, and find on the World Bank statistics, 1916-17 time period, Egypt, literacy rate, really low. Syria, a lot of other places, Algeria. And you look at it 60 years later or 40 years later, there's a massive catch-up. Now, you could argue what is the quality of that education, but in terms of literacy, there are major gains. In terms of health, there are major gains. Uh, the question really is about inequality of access, which is more paramount in that world. Um, Zaid, your question, I think, uh, it basically reinforces the point we made, which is that in order for business to thrive, you have to allow private sector to operate outside the royal circle. And regional airlines is actually an excellent example of lack of complementarity, lack of coordination. You have in the same small Gulf area, you have four or five different airlines that are pretty much competing with each other and are being heavily subsidized by the state. Some of them are the best, one of the best airlines, but how profitable they are, as you said, is a big question mark. Um, and that's about it. I think about the timing of the revolution, I'll leave that to, uh, to Boston as well. I think the timing of the revolution is very interesting because it's, when we speak about the key demands of freedom, bread, and social justice, I think these have been there for a long time in most Arab countries. Uh, one should not underestimate the importance of the information revolution. I think what happened was you have a large number of young people in the Arab world which is growing at a very accelerating rate, and it is the largest cohort of youth in the history of the Arab world, who are connected. If Bo Azizi set fire to himself in, in, uh, in Tunis 20 years ago, how many people would have known about it in the Arab world? Probably very few people. Maybe if it was reported in the Times of London, people would have found out about it a week later, or maybe a year later. But the fact that it actually happened in 2011, and it was carried immediately, and it was on YouTube, and it was through the social media, and people knew about it everywhere, I think you had, you had a major effect on people who were asking for their dignity, and particularly young people who feel that they are alienated, and they are sidelined, and they have no equal opportunity to get any kind of social upward mobility. I think that was a real issue, and this is a very major issue. So I think that the change that is taking place in the Arab world is really a deep change, and it is unprecedented change. To the extent that governments are avant-garde and, and really accept and understand and appreciate the kind of changes that are required and therefore reform accordingly, they will be actually very responsive and they might be saved and they will address the aspirations of the people. And I here say, you know, this is an example that is being followed in Jordan. And I'm not saying that because I'm Jordanian, but this is, this is the reality. There is a process. You can disagree with it. You can agree with it. But there is a process of reform that is going on in Jordan. And it is moving towards addressing a number of critical issues and a number of critical uh, uh, demands that, that, are, that are legitimate demands. Same maybe in Morocco. In, in other places, maybe they were not as responsive as before. So there is a real issue. Governments have no choice. We need to understand that governments have no choice anymore to continue the way they were. Whether they are in Saudi Arabia, I don't think that it can continue business as usual with the Sabics and the Bin Laden and so forth. This whole patronage formula has been challenged. I think irreversibly challenged. How do you meet this, this, uh, this, this dynamic? How do you respond to it? 
You need to find another formula. It's not going to be easy. This is not going to be easy, as you said. It's a conundrum. It's a, it's a real puzzle. These are, uh, 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 these are um, incestuous relationships that have existed for many, many years between politics and business and, and, and economics. And uh, maybe the role of the intellectuals is not there yet. But when, once people realize that there is no choice, once people realize that the dust has settled, the regimes have been changed, the constitutions have been written, the elections have taken place, the Muslim Brotherhood have come to power, okay, what next? Where is the bread? What do we do about job opportunities? Where are the equal opportunities? What do we do about the day after? So this is the real question. When people are faced with these existential issues about what do they do with the real quest, the core issues that touch the ordinary citizen, which fueled the revolt in the first place, the jobs, the equal opportunity. I think this is when people need to sit together, whether intellectual or industrialists, or, and, and to really think creatively, how do we get our economic act together in order to produce the right kind of jobs? Without a vibrant, strong private sector that is not held by patronage, this is not going to happen. Without the region working as a region and defining itself as an economic region, this is not going to happen. And without the international community realizing that it has a stake in the stability and the security of this region and therefore investing in it as a region and dealing with it as a region and supporting all of these regional models of integration, this is not going to happen. So I'm not suggesting this is easy. This is very difficult. It's going to take a long time. The situation is very difficult today. The situation is getting more difficult as we speak. As I said, the rates of unemployment in Egypt and Tunis have doubled, nearly doubled from two years until today. And you have serious issues with regards to foreign direct investment and with regards to other issues. One last thing. There is a debate going on in the Arab world today about which economic model do we follow? Because obviously, the, what is being attacked as the neoliberal reforms, which truly are the blueprints of the IMF and the World Bank. I mean, when, when we speak about Jordan, for example, people think that we do have different ideologies. In fact, we don't. There was a serious financial and economic crisis that Jordan went through in 1989 as a result of I, the IMF and the World Bank were invited to stabilize the economy and to restructure the different sectors. Therefore, we had to adopt certain measures, including privatization, including commercialization, including the gradual removal of subsidies. It was in response to an IMF program. Now, whether those policies worked or not, whether they, were, they actually uh, did work in producing economic growth from the period 2002 to 2008, the Jordanian economy registered 6.5% a real growth over a period of five, six years, which is unprecedented in the history of the country. Having said this, to what extent was there inclusion? To what extent was there equal development? To what extent the social safety, safety net was addressed when the removal of the subsidies took place? I, I think that all of these are lessons to be learned for the future when we draw up the economic order that we advocate here. We have 10 minutes left, and I have four people waiting for questions. Is there a question back you in this? Yes, you. Uh, thank you. My name is uh, Mazin. I'm from Jordan. Actually, the remarks of uh, uh, Dr. Bas just now allowed me to come and uh, pose this question because uh, touching on in the end, the goal in the end is all about bread. It's all about employment. It's all about jobs. After everything settles down, in the end, you know, the head of the family in the village, in the town, they want to make some kind of subsistence for their nuclear family. How do you do that? It's not about the central government in the capital. It's about um, uh, for them being able to provide for their for their 
uh, for their children. And of course, as a theory, the lifting of patronage, it cannot continue, for sure, for economic reason or for any reason whatsoever. But what's the other model? I mean, where do you see another model that is uh, a successful one? I know you have uh, uh, sit in for a long time as a decision maker, not only as an academic, but somebody who drew policy in the country and many of it until today is, uh, is in our country. But the thing is, uh, somebody would ask you, which model? If we look around us today in Europe, this is a region. There is economic integration. Is this it? I mean, would you come and say, this is the model, with all what's going on nowadays in different countries? So would you come and say to the, to the parliament, for instance, the model that we are talking about in, in the Arab region, is it something similar to this model in Europe, or is it something that's in Asia? Which one is really working? With total agreement, what you said about the importance of lifting of patronage, but at, at the same time, as maybe non-economists, we would want to know which is the model that works. Thank you. Thank you. And then we had two questions in this row here. You first, yeah. Then. Hi, Hassan Jivraj from Euroweek magazine. Uh, I cover Islamic finance mainly. Um, Dr. Dasim, you talked about alternative sources of finance in your lecture um, with what's going on in Europe with their own credit crisis and uh, tightening of finance around the world. Um, do you see that Islamic finance is a viable uh, option, particularly in somewhere like Jordan, that needs uh, alternative sources for, say, infrastructure projects? And because, you know, in, in uh, Egypt, they've been having big problems with the uh, Sukuk uh, um, legislation. I mean, I mean just uh, on Tuesday, they just, they just uh, passed the um, uh, recommendation that Al-Azhar gave to them on uh, Sunday. Um, although we've seen an acceleration in certain North African countries like Libya, Libya has passed a law that um, bans all interests interest given to individuals and from January 2014, they're going to ban interest on loans given to companies. And also we're seeing moves from Morocco and Tunisia. But why is it taking so long? You know, all these North African countries are talking so much about, like, yeah, let's do Islamic finance, let's do Islamic finance. You know, it's working well in Malaysia, relatively working well in the Gulf. Why is it taking so long in the Levant and in North Africa? Is there a question over here? No? Okay, there's a woman here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, regarding the, the idea of paralleling the EU, um, the EU has been an iterated integration, and I wanted to ask about the idea of sequencing and the pace of change. So you talked about social justice and the different needs of social justice across the region, so you could argue that North Africa, you have a question of political participation in terms of the social contract. In the Levant, you have an issue of minority rights in terms of the social contract, and in the Gulf specifically, the issue of social rights, sort of primarily. So the question of which to sequence first is an issue, and then how to leverage the push of the private sector. Um, today, the UAE has acknowledged that to facilitate greater trust in the free economic zones, that they'll have a mixed court system, for example. Um, and that's a direct consequence of the push of the private sector to, to facilitate greater transparency and regulation. So if you had the recipe for ideal leveraging and sequencing, what would that look like in terms of regional integration? Thank you. Final thoughts, two minutes each. Uh, 
Well, I would, I would very uh, quickly talk about the, the, you talked about the alternative model. I, as an economist, a little hesitant to think about a particular model. I would rather think about the ingredients that might make a model successful. And there are many different models around. Uh, you know, you have China, you have Turkey. Uh, in all of these cases, I think there are a couple of ingredients that are common, and one of them is this regional linkage. Uh, you know, without regional linkages, uh, Turkey would not be the Turkey that you find uh, today. Now, of course, what has really, you know, created that process is really about bringing people from the margins to the mainstream. All those policies that allow people to shift from the margins to the mainstream. And that means you need to drop entry barriers. People are creative all over the world. They need a level playing field. Once you ensure a level playing field, a lot of wonders will be made. But of course, it's not a zero-sum game because you had, of course, greater financial integration in the MENA region. And one reason that happened was because the politics of finance financial integration was a little different. It created new contracts for elites in telecommunications and banking and services. Whereas in trade, you are actually competing with rents. So I'm actually more in favor of using Douglas North's ideology, uh, the terminology, which is an open access order. It's, it's not necessarily about neoliberal reform or uh, other kinds of models. It's about how societies move from a very exclusionary phase, exclusivist phase, to more inclusionary process. Now that process may run in a slightly different way, uh, depending on the kind of sequencing we have in the Arab world and another place. But in, for far too long in the Arab world, uh, we have focused a lot more on ideology, you know, the, the socialist era, and then it's all about neoliberal order today, or its criticism. I think it's time to think about the micro-ingredients that create success, and their trade, open access order, uh, and lower barriers are all going to play a very hugely important role. Just a point on the model. I think, uh, as Adil said, it's about the ingredients, but most importantly, I worry about economic growth. I really worry, as you said, people need to put bread on the table for their families. So it's about economic growth. I feel today, and it's more than a feeling because I think the empirical evidence suggests that, that no Arab country today is able to handle its economic issues and to meet the challenges of the future without regionalization. There is no way out of it. Take Jordan for, as an example, which you know very well. There is no way that Jordan will be able to uh, deal with its energy issues, water issues, infrastructure issues, and therefore growth issues without having a proper region. Now, the region is becoming increasingly politically fragmented, which to me is all the more reason for us to build economic bridges and to find out synergies and complementarities across the region. But the case is also applicable to Tunis. The case is also applicable to Egypt. The case is also applicable to Libya. I cannot see how any one country will be able to solve its unemployment issues and the increasing numbers of youth that who, who are coming in the labor market every year without having borders where you can have the free flow of labor going across, labor, across these borders. It is impossible to have. There is no way that you can find a, a route to the European Union and to increase exports to the European Union, particularly in agricultural products, 
in the near future. You have to find alternative ways. The alternative way is to regionalize and to build trade relations across, you know, across the Arab world in a horizontal, horizontal manner. So I don't know what you would call that model and what the alternative model is. Is it regional model? Is it regional integration? But maybe it's, it's a bit of both. I'm not sure whether it, the, example, the European example is readily in my mind. But I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is that there is no other way possible today for any one individual Arab country to be able to solve its issues up unless they rely on some kind of a regional coordination, to say the least, and integration, hopefully, to, to meet those demands. How do you get the sequences, sequencing, Dr. Shelley, in, in an ideal world? I think, as we see, as we saw in the presentation that Adil made, I think the, the whole notion of patronage, the whole notion of social contract, which is not something that was devised in this century, maybe we've uh, inherited it from, from previous years, from the Ottoman Empire and even before, and past the, the Second World War. Uh, I think you start with the, sec with the social contract. I think this is, this is where we are at today. I think the Arab Spring has given people, has opened the door for people to say, this is what we want in terms of better governance. We want accountability, we want uh, transparency, we want rule of law, we want, I mean, the West is, is a bit too fixated on elections and democracy and what have you. I think we need to start with better governance. Let's talk about the rule of law. Let's talk about accountability. Let's talk about transparency. I think these are the institutional mechanisms of reform that will allow for people to be able to have equal opportunity and therefore a more inclusive economic development that will tackle their issues. So you start with that, in my opinion, and then you, you move forward. Um, the other question about Islamic finance, I think it's very relevant. Uh, I think Islamic finance is a very important point. In Jordan, we passed a law for Islamic sukuk last year, which took us a long time, by the way, to do. But, and I always thought that there must have been some kind of a reason why we are not passing the law. And there, in reality, there wasn't. There isn't a, a political uh, issue in, in most Arab countries. For some reason, Islamic finance has lagged behind. And I think... Uh, the Sukuk law, for example, in Jordan, which we passed, will open a huge opening for major financing opportunities, particularly for small and medium-sized enterprises. And I think if that is replicated, I personally believe that Islamic finance is still an untapped potential everywhere, but particularly in the Arab world. If we move in a concentrated and in a static manner, I think there is a lot of doors, there's a lot of opportunity for, for financing, particularly for companies, for the real private sector, and for SMEs. Well, plenty of food for thought. Uh, please join me in thanking our two speakers, Rasim Awadala and Adil Malik, and thank you very much for coming.